The following sermon audio is from the Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about the Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. The true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. Father God, we come to you today as your people. We're gathered um, because, for many reasons, because we feel our need of it, because you've commanded it, because we know that this is how you are building us up, building us into, um, into a true temple. You will dwell with us forever. So, Lord, as we come today, we know that you have purposes in the lives of each of your people, good purposes. We know that these purposes are fueled by your word. We know that these purposes are woven by your spirit. And so we ask right now that your spirit would do that work in us, would use your word and bring us further along, bring us further in, further up long to see more of you, to know our place in your will and in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know, the first photograph was taken in the year 1826. Um, the inventor, Joseph Niepce, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, he captured the, the outside of his French country home. That was the first photo. Before that, if you wanted to know what a landscape looked like, you'd have to see a drawing. And if you wanted to see what a person looked like, well, there's really no way. Um, I mean, if you're wealthy, you could get a portrait, but sometimes those were embellished. How could you know you were really seeing the, the true image of the person? Now, in the early 1800s, it was really popular right before the photograph emerged to have those black silhouette pictures, you know what I'm talking about? where it's sort of the profile of the person, but it's just black, and so you can kind of see the line of their facial structure and some hair or whatever, their collar. Um, and that's, that's what there was. It seems quite shadowy, right? And yet those silhouettes were still a great comfort to people, reminding them of, of their loved ones. Uh, so think how stunning it was in the decades that followed when they could see an actual photograph of someone they knew. They could see the actual features with photography. It was just a phenomenal development. Well, I think this, this bears a little bit of resemblance to the paradigm shift that came with the arrival of Jesus Christ on the pages of history because the Old Covenant sacrificial system for thousands of years had given the people of God a shadowy silhouette of the redemption that was coming. But who would bring that redemption? And how would it come? The, the details were fuzzy. This sacrificial system was a, a, it served as a crude representation of their promised salvation, and that would have to suffice until the right time came, the fullness of time in which the photograph, the, the true image would be revealed, and it did arrive. With crystal clarity, Jesus showed us the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of the nature of the invisible God. And the sacrifice that he completed on our behalf, it, it, um, it, made, it completed the, the shadowy images. It filled them out. It showed us the details of what the Levitical law had always been pointing to. And that's our starting point for our text this morning. Our text is, is thick today. You'll probably want to keep your Bible in front of you. Um, it, it really caps off this whole big theology section of the book of Hebrews. Everything we've seen so far, this is going to cap it off for the theology portion. And then in the future weeks, the remaining um, three and a half chapters, that is going to get into some dynamic application of all these things we've been learning. So today might feel like some concepts that we've been hearing already, but repetition is the best teacher. And so the author of Hebrews wants to use these verses to cap off and summarize all of that hard work that we've been doing. So today we're going to see four points. We're going to see that Jesus is better. That's, that's our, um, our theme, our series title. Jesus is better. Why? Because verses 1 through 4, the old covenant system could not solve our sin problem. It could not solve our sin problem. Verses 5 through 10, Jesus' body offered in obedience is what truly makes his people holy. Then in verses 11 through 14, we'll see that Jesus sits in victory since atonement is completed. It's done. It's finished. And then in the fourth section, verses 15 to 18, we'll see that with the forgiveness that Jesus alone can provide, no offerings remain. No more sacrifices for sin. 
So let's get started in verse 1. It says that since the law, that's when it says the law there, it's really shorthand for the whole ritual life of the entire Old Covenant. Since that has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. It has just a shadow of the good things. When it says good things here, it, means, it really means everything that comes through the death and resurrection and life of Jesus, especially forgiveness for sins, but also peace with God, peace with each other, an eternal inheritance, a freed conscience, Redemption from shame and guilt and the power of evil in our lives. So the Old Testament sacrificial system could only give us a shadow of those good things. And that shadowy promise was enough. It was enough to maintain the hope of God's faithful people for those millennia before Christ. It was enough to show the people the character of their God. But it was not enough to allow rest from the rituals. They had to keep making the same sacrifices year after year, even though in one sense it didn't change anything. Now that might be a a shocking statement for a first century Jew to hear. My sacrifices aren't really taking away sin. But think about it, the text goes on to say. How could it be otherwise? Because if if they did take away sin, then those sacrifices would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices that have to keep happening, there is a reminder of sins every year. So you don't keep going through the motions of a demanding activity if you don't think it's needed anymore, right? If you don't think the floor is really dirty, you don't get down on your hands and knees to scrub those tiles. But if, if you're very conscious, like, oh, no, there's fresh mud here, there's... I don't know, pet urine, half-chewed toddler food. You get down on your knees and you scrub, and, and you know, you're going to be motivated to scrub even if it never seems to get totally clean. Maybe the color is never back to, to how it originally was. And in that way, even one's cleaning routine can be a reminder of the stains that remain. You clean one floor, it makes you think of the floors that still need to be cleaned, or the scrubbing never really gets everything out. Uh, similarly, you keep sacrificing. You keep sacrificing because in the sacrifices themselves, there was a reminder of sins every year. You know, this is probably thinking about the Day of Atonement, and every time it rolled around, yes, there, there was a celebration, this annual sacrifice to bring about, uh, bring the people back into at one with their God, atonement, at one But similar to, if you think about a big, big family gathering, big extended family at holiday or something, you know, we get together to celebrate. At the same time, it might serve as a reminder of how messed up we all are. Well, in the same way, the Day of Atonement reminded the people of the sin that they could easily put out of their mind the rest of the year, but this event brings it back into consciousness. So instead of relieving the conscience, it reminded the conscience. There was no real positive traction happening simply because of these rituals. Because as verse 4 concludes, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And if you remember, chapter 9 left us with the thought that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And yet here we read that it's impossible for 
the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sin. It seems like a contradictory situation. Like, okay, there has to be blood. This blood doesn't work. Okay, but what we need to see is that the blood of bulls and goats and sheep wasn't intended to be an end unto itself. It was a signpost. It was pointing to the shedding of a different substitute's blood that really needed to take place. The sacrificial system was like this vast and elaborate puzzle. And the good news of Jesus' death on the cross is like the key that unlocks that puzzle. Romans chapter 3 speaks of how in former times God in his divine forbearance had passed over sins. But with Jesus, God's justice in accepting sinners is made known. It's proven. So the Old Testament sacrifices, those pointed toward forgiveness in Christ, and they just held back for a time God's wrath until the effective sacrifice would come. And really, how could it be any different? Because these were dumb animals just being prodded and led to be where they'd be slaughtered against their will. How would that be a fitting substitution for an intelligent, spirit-bearing human being who had willingly and voluntarily chosen sin? It doesn't match, right? It's like my son telling me that, that his stuffed dog toy is going to clean his room for him. Like, sorry, Soren, but Ruffy is not capable of conscious consent or voluntary substitution. So unless there's someone else behind that effort, I don't think the room's going to get clean. And similarly... In the Old Covenant, apart from it being fulfilled in a deeper way by someone else, it simply could not solve the problem of sin. It's like you need a surgery, but you're just being given medicines that temporarily alleviate the symptoms. Or one pastor put it this way, that the Old Covenant was like an ill-fitting lid that you put over the boiling pot, the boiling cauldron of God's wrath against sin. You're glad that the, the lid is there. You know, you're glad that the medicine is there. It's certainly needed. It, it makes you feel better for a time, but it doesn't solve the problem. So you keep asking, when is the surgery coming? When, when would the cauldron of sin be poured out safely? You needed Jesus. So let's pause and reflect. Are there any aspects of a religion of mere shadows that you're clinging to? We're talking about how we're moving past the shadows to Jesus. You know, all religions demand some sort of sacrifice to take care of guilt and to establish oneself as righteous. In Islam and in Hinduism and, and many tribal religions, still today they have animal sacrifice. But even for the rest of us, I think sacrifices come naturally that may not involve blood, but certainly involve sweat and tears and these are instincts for us because we're hardwired to respond to guilt by trying to do something ourselves to wipe it away. You know, even the, the most hardened atheists sometimes find themselves acting according to some sort of karma or, or a principle of like responding to, um, to a debt that they feel like they've incurred because of their mistakes. And we'll talk later about how we too, even in the church, may be tempted to cling to a kind of sacrifice. But remember, we're talking about the whole law um, as a shadow. Even though sacrifice definitely takes center stage, we can think about also um, an example in the earlier passages was Old Testament cleansing rituals. That's a shadow too. In how many ways do we act as if merely cleaning up our outward appearance somehow makes us a better person? 
you know, grooming our image, cultivating our social media profile, or, um, or winning certain public acknowledgement of our goodness through, through doing some, some visible good deed. You know, these are just vain and shadowy ritual washings. They can't make us right with God. And later passages of Hebrews will speak about how we no longer seek salvation in a shadowy kingdom, as did ancient Israel, but we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do we really believe that when we let our American politics feel like a potential source of either destruction or salvation for us? See, if we stop to assess, we will see that we're tempted, just like the first recipients of Hebrews, to, to cling to a shadow of salvation that's tangible rather than to the far better but unseen fulfillment of these things. So we have to look to the fulfillment. We have to cling to the fulfillment, and that came in Jesus. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In your Bibles, you'll see that verses 5 through 7 are kind of set apart from the rest of the text, and that's because it's a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 40, that was written about a thousand years before Jesus by his ancestor, King David. Now, what's really interesting about these words here is that the author of Hebrews attributes them to Jesus. Speaking of his own taking on flesh and coming into the world. How is that possible? We need to pause here and think about that because we want to read our Bibles in the same way that Jesus and his apostles read their Old Testament, don't we? And we need to see that the Old Testament is not meant to be read only historically, but it's also meant to be read typologically. What do I mean by that? Well, we shouldn't only read historically like, okay, it's a Psalm of David. Let's see what's going on with David. Now, you should see what's going on with David. Try to understand the original context of the psalm what he's getting after. That's, that's your starting place, but don't stop there. You should also read typologically, knowing that Old Testament events and frameworks and people are, they're prophecies in action, okay? They're types or foreshadowings of the great drama that would play out fully and finally in Jesus. So reading the Bible for all it's worth means that you're not only paying attention to the individual parts, but you're also remembering that it's one book with one main character throughout, and it's written by one author who's also the architect of history. So that's a big conversation. We can talk about that anytime you want, but let's keep moving. So yes, Psalm 40, the inspired author, David himself. He's thinking about the salvation that he needs from the Lord, and he realizes that, you know, truly this, these animal sacrifices themselves, that's, that's not what God most delights in, but rather he wants an obedient heart of a life that's devoted to him. David wrote those words, and, and no doubt David wanted those words to be about him. He wanted to offer himself in that way. I don't doubt that. And yet, the, the fullness of these sentiments, these commitments, it, it couldn't describe David. 
Um, these words are quoted here because they, they reveal the same trajectory that the author of Hebrews is pointing out to us, that we're moving away from a routine of sacrifices that don't truly get to the bottom of things, and we're moving toward an act of obedience that would fulfill the ancient writings. So David was speaking about, you know, how God would be more pleased with the obedience of his servant than who was who truly in conformity to God's will. That's what God wants. Be more pleased with that than all the sacrifices for sin in the world. And so David aspired to be such a servant, but we know from the biblical record, you know, David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he, he couldn't be that person, not perfectly. And so maybe known, or maybe unbeknownst to David, these same words held a different meaning when contemplating the coming Christ. They pointed to one who not only would please God more than sacrifices with his obedience, but also one who actually through his obedience would make irrelevant the need for sacrifices. When Jesus entered the world, he interpreted words like this correctly. He saw that his body would be the sacrifice that would please God and would satisfy his wrath against sin. So Jesus came to do God's will all the way to the cross. His sacrifice alone could uniquely atone for sin because he was a willing and perfect substitute. When we look at these words, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, are we surprised at all that Scripture would say something like that? Because, I mean, if you read your Old Testament, it was God himself who established this sacrificial system, right? So why would he tell us, you know, go through these rituals, and then, oh yeah, actually these don't please me. What? Does God seem bipolar here? Bring sacrifices, but I don't want your sacrifices. No, we're meant to see a trajectory, and it's a trajectory that's building throughout the whole Old Testament. I'll give you some examples. So First uh, Samuel 15, Samuel asks Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In Psalm 51, where David is repenting of adultery and murder, he prays, For you, would not del- you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Answer. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Hosea 6.6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. There are other similar passages too in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. This tension is found throughout the whole Old Testament that on the one hand, the prophets are calling the people back to faithfulness to the Old Covenant, which includes the sacrificial system. But then, on the other hand, they say, you know, these sacrifices are useless to God. What he really desires is hearts that love to do his will. So even though God had established the sacrificial system, 
It was really a stand-in for what really pleases him. Obedience, not sacrifices to cover disobedience. So this kind of leaves us with a puzzle, okay? The sacrificial system means something. It's, it was doing something good. How is that going to be fulfilled? But then also, how can we have clean hearts of obedience that God prefers to sacrifice? And the answer to both of those comes in the one person of Jesus Christ. You know, we often talk about how his sacrifice ended the need for other sacrifices. But we don't speak often enough of how we're also saved by his righteous life. And to see that link between Jesus' desire to do the will of the Father, his righteous life, and the end of the sacrificial system. You can look at Isaiah 53. It prophesied, When his soul, when Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So they're, they're right there together. The offering for guilt because Jesus came to do God's will. He completes the sacrificial system even as he lives out perfect obedience as an entirely new type of human. So, Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. It says, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first. He, he abolishes the first. He destroys the first. This is very strong language. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So Jesus' obedience, including going to the cross, it abolishes the need for any further sacrifices for sin, and it establishes a new way of serving God from the obedience of the heart. And, and one way to think about the new covenant is that Jesus came to give us his obedience. It says Jesus loves to do the will of God. He came to make a people who live that same way. Just as in all the family line of the, the, the first man, Adam, we are hopelessly caught up in the grip, the grip of corrupt living, so also now in the family line of the new man, Jesus Christ, we are irresistibly caught up into his righteousness. So your desires are changed. You're living out of that broken and contrite heart that knows and loves the Lord. And this new status is spelled out in verse 10. It says, And by that will, God's will that Jesus would go to the cross, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified. What does that word sanctified mean? A dictionary definition is set apart, made holy. A lot of times, though, when we talk about being sanctified, our, our minds go straight to growing in holiness progressively, right? Like the Spirit conforms us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that concept of progressive sanctification is definitely true, but it's just not the focus of verse 10 here. The focus here is on our positional sanctification. So it happened, past tense, once for all. We were sanctified. We were set apart by the blood of of Jesus for the service of God. So our status right now is holy. Holy. Even the Christian that's severely wrestling with stubborn sin patterns, your status in God's eyes is holy. Even as we know full well that we need to grow in that lived out holiness. 
and meditating on that beautiful truth, right, of our secure status as set apart for God, as we meditate on that, it can actually fuel our progress in actually growing in holiness and becoming what we really are because we are now holy. So the reality is that we who trust Christ now, we, we now do life in the realm of the holy and the purified. Just as Jesus offered his body out of obedience, so now also do we. His doing away with sacrifice, his establishing the order of heartfelt obedience, that freed us, that gave us the power to live in the same way. Now one question that might be stirring in some of you is like, okay, this text says no more sacrifices. Instead, we've been sanctified to live for God's will, just as Jesus did. But what about the New Testament passages that describe obedience to God as sacrifice? What about Romans 12, which tells us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship? Or even in the book of Hebrews, in the last chapter, it says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Sure, these are, are different sacrifices than slaughtering animals, but still isn't this mixed messaging? No. Not when you consider that the sacrifices that are specifically done away with are the sacrifices related to sin and guilt. But there was another type of offering described in the Levitical law that was voluntary, that was whenever you wanted to do it, and that was the offering of thanksgiving. And so the logic of both Hebrews and Romans is just this. Because sin and guilt offerings are now irrelevant, they don't need to be offered anymore, therefore, now let sincere obedience pour out of your hearts. Let your every word and action be a voluntary offering of thanksgiving to God. So are you living out of thanksgiving to God in your heart? Or are you still living in the shadows of sort of a, a half-hearted worship? I, I guess I'll have to do these sacrifices. I'll have, to, I'll have to do this or that, and it's a drudgery. Is there something in God's will this morning that, that you're not joyfully obedient in? Maybe it's a conversation you know you need to have, a habit you need to change, something you need to say no to, something you need to say yes to. But whatever that is, maybe you don't like it because it goes against how you wish God's will would play out in your life. If that's you today, I want to encourage you to look back on the joyful obedience of Jesus to the Father all the way to the cross. and Realize that he redeemed you into that same ability to say, in a different but also similar way, a body you have prepared for me. I have come to do your will, O God. But if your obedience is begrudging, if you're consciously kind of holding yourself back from wholeheartedly pursuing God's desire for you, well, then your discipleship is kind of like ashes on an old and futile altar. Your worship is lingering in the abolished shadows. Instead, you need to say, like Jesus, here I am. I've come to do your will. Live the new covenant life of a surrendered will because you can. Because that life has been given you by Jesus and he sanctified you. Jesus' body offered in obedience served to set his people apart for holiness. 
Now, the third section in our passage starts with the word and in verse 11, but it's not so much a new thought as it is a repetition and a stacking of arguments. Verses 11 to 14. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We've spoken of this before, that in the temple, standing was the normal position of the priests in their service, right? There were no seats there. They had to keep offering sacrifices. And we see in verses 1 through 4 here that, in many ways, that, that is a cycle of futility. Those same sacrifices can never take away sins. So, the priests were standing, It's also true that in the throne room of God, standing is the normal position of angels. Whenever we see angels in Scripture, they are standing there. And um, even obedient and powerful angels are never invited to sit down. But Jesus, the great high priest, the, the one who's greater than angels, greater than Moses, the giver of greater rest, mediator of the greater covenant, he is given the greatest place of honor. Because he completed everything necessary, he sits just as it was prophesied about him in Psalm 110. So because we don't have a standing priest who is you know, rightfully uneasy in God's presence and just has to keep moving and, and there's always you know, a little bit of terror there, instead we have a sitting and a sovereign high priest and that means that we too can rest easy. The fact that he sat down proves that his sacrifice has been accepted. The fact that he has the seat of power means that he has the ability to keep dispensing, to keep giving us the benefits that were gained by his finished work. And the fact that we read in, in verse 13 there that he is, he is waiting. He's waiting on that throne. That shows that the story isn't finished. Jesus' return has kind of been on the author's mind since the end of uh, chapter 9. Um, it made mention of us eagerly waiting for him. And um, that he comes back to that now, and then in future chapters, it's, it's going to emerge as even more of a theme. But Jesus is awaiting a reward. He's, he's waiting for the time of his reward when an inheritance of all nations will be given him, and he will share that inheritance with his people forever. So the fact of, that Jesus is waiting, that's meant to fuel our waiting as well, our expectant waiting. And you know, we can focus on that future. We can think about those glorious things to come because now is okay. Now is taken care of. Verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we have everything we need for now. Those in Christ have been perfected. Whoa, whoa, what? I don't feel perfect. You might say, no, 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 no. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've been thinking. You don't know what I've been smoking. You don't know how I've treated people. I am not perfected. Well, the phrase perfected or made perfect, it occurs here for the seventh out of nine times in the book of Hebrews. I don't know if you've caught that as we've gone by. In the first five 
occurrences of made perfect in the book of Hebrews spoke about Jesus. And that kind of grabbed our attention as like sounding wrong. What? But then we saw that what it means is that through his incarnation and his perfect obedience, completion of his suffering, Jesus was made complete or fitting. He was always morally perfect. But this sense of being made perfect speaks to how Jesus was equipped and how he earned the right to serve as our high priest forever. So that's the first five uses of made perfect in the book of Hebrews. But the sixth through ninth time, it actually shifts to us. And we're the ones being made perfect. And what we're meant to see is that his perfection leads to ours. We too have been made complete, not lacking anything we need to freely serve with cleansed consciences in the realm of our holy God. Now again, we see here um, in verse 14, talk of sanctification, just as in verse 10, but here the focus actually is on that progressive sanctification. Though we have been perfected, we've been made perfect once for all, we are still being sanctified. We've been given a position separated for God by the single offering of Christ, but that is a past event with ongoing consequences, ongoing effects. So what that means is that if you are in Christ, you cannot escape this growth in holiness. You can't escape it. You simply won't want to go on living in the way that just comes naturally. You'll find you're changing. You won't desire the same things anymore, and you can't be comfortable in that old way of life anymore. And if you can... Well, if you can, then that might simply prove that you're not in Christ at all. And we will talk about that next week. The fact that our path toward holiness is already purchased, is already secure, this should be, quite frankly, thrilling for us, you know? Do you see how bright the future is? Whatever you go through, Christian, whatever, however life changes, you can be certain that our good God will use it to shape you in greater purity of heart and greater freedom every day from the evil within. Sure, there's going to be valleys. There might be backward steps. But the trajectory is certain all the way through to eternity. And that's when the full beauty of your redeemed identity will be revealed. So these are, these are some big ideas, right? We've already seen this morning. But remember, this section is kind of like the caboose on a long theology train in the book of Hebrews. And our last verses for this morning are, are going to help us make sure that we walk away with the one necessary conclusion from what we've talked about. No more sacrifice is needed. No more sacrifice. Do we need extra evidence that Jesus did away with sacrifice and established a new kind of life in God's will? Well, look no further than the quote from Jeremiah that keeps popping up in, in Hebrews. We saw it back in chapter 8. It's revisited for us in verse 16. He says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Then, he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So in that quote from Jeremiah, we see evidence of everything we've been talking about today. I will remember their sins no more. There's a doing away with the need for sacrifice. And I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is a new era of obedience from the heart that's been forged. The obedience of Jesus makes our obedience possible because our seated 
priest king has sent his spirit to transform our wills to be in conformity with God's will. So what's the big takeaway? If you remember nothing else from everything we've said this morning, look at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, meaning sins and lawless deeds, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You know, in Christ, we no longer need, and we dare not attempt any further offering for sin. Are there methods for alleviating guilt that we as Jesus people are still for some reason pursuing? Think about that. Is it coming here on Sundays that makes you feel okay? Or taking communion? Or clocking a certain amount of time in prayer or in the word? Or just giving your money or your time to worthwhile causes, maybe even Christian ministry? Is that what does it for you? Is that what seems to get the monkey off your back? You have a need to be needed. Other people respond to guilt by trying to hurt themselves. Whether, whether or not the connection is clear to them, I think you know, they wish they were punished instead of Jesus. They want to do it themselves. Maybe they cut themselves or abuse substances or overexercise or get into some eating disorder. The fact that your guilt, past, present, future, is taken away by the finished work of Christ, that, it's easy to say, but it's a lot harder to live out every day, isn't it? Because we, we keep wanting to cling to the shadows. And so we have to keep ringing this bell. We have to keep trumpeting this anthem that we do not rely on ritual. We do not rely on tradition or self-punishment or moral self-help. We rely only on the forgiveness of our sins by the blood of Jesus and the power for holiness that's freely given from our heavenly Lord. The old way is inadequate to bring you to God. Jesus Christ is all we need. And when you believe that you're forgiven and you really believe that you've been set apart with everything you need for holiness, then you can and you will live differently. But if you forget it, well then, you're kind of denying the whole New Testament. You know? Just like the original recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, then you're in danger of returning to Judaism or, or Islam or Mormonism or humanism or, or whatever system of self-wrought righteousness comes naturally to you. Don't return to the shadows. Aren't you tired of living that way? So let's agree here and now, no more sacrifices for sin. And as we truly believe that we've been made holy, I, I can't wait to see what joy and flourishing unfolds in each of our lives as our wills and his will merge into one. Let's pray. God, this is our desire. We want to live like Jesus. We want to say, here I am. With the body you've given me, I've come to do your will. We know that that sort of life has been purchased for us, is freely given to us. So, Lord, use this word today by your Holy Spirit to keep us out of the shadows, to keep us tied to the real thing, walking with Jesus Christ, relying on his finished work every day. Give us the joy that comes with that.
We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.